when you first got to the varsity football team at St. Francis, who was the first person to kick your butt? What was that welcome to varsity moment? Yeah, so for me, uh, it was my own teammate, uh, Jamarcus Williams, who was um, a defensive lineman. And and I had only been playing offensive line for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, so I was I was running the scout team as a junior. And, um, you know, he was the big the big force in the middle. And, uh, you know, he, he blew me up quite a bit. Um, luckily, it was just in practice. But um, that was definitely a, a welcome to varsity moment for me, um, you know, and then playing in the Bay area in the, in the West Catholic athletic league. Um, you know, we were, we were playing dudes and, and seeing dudes at, um, you know, every level at, at, and every game. So, um, you know, Kiko Alonzo was a guy I played against oh, yeah. who, who played in the NFL and um, had a, I think he just recently retired and, and had a, had a great career. And then um, the Leon Eskridge was, uh, I guess the the fastest and maybe the most athletic person I, I had seen at the varsity level. And um, I was the long snapper at, as a junior. So that was really my only playing time. And, and we actually, part of our game plan was to punt to him, punt away from him. So we would punt on third downs every once in a while. So then he couldn't wow. go back as the returner. Um, wow, so I would sub in for, yep. So I would sub in for the center kind of every random series and, um, our quarterback would just back up a few extra yards. I would, I would snap it to him and, and he would punt, um, again, to keep the ball out of his hands, but, but seeing him with the ball in his hands was the first, um, I would say like electric high school player that I had seen. And, and he went on to play at Minnesota and San Jose state. Um, but yeah, that was my, I guess, wow. You know, these guys are, are at a whole different level than I'm at. It always feel like I need one more boy and one more line. Record the track just one more time. My family think I bumped my head, lost my mind, and sharing them. I'm just fine. I'm good enough, but I need one more boy and one more line. Record the track just one more time. My family think I bumped my head, lost my mind, and sharing them. I'm just fine. I'm good enough, but I need one more boy and one more line. Record the track just one more time. My family think I bumped my head. Lost my mind and sharing them. I'm just fine, I'm good enough. But you be told I need some therapy. Initially ain't do it voluntarily, but now I got a legacy. All right, welcome back to another brand new episode of the Team Player Podcast. We are at episode number 39. This is a unique one. This is a coach that I did not know from Adam. I did not I did not know this guy. I had just I just released the Masaki Matsumoto episode, episode number 23, and I just noticed that our guest today kind of you know liked it and retweeted on Twitter and I I saw the last name and, you know, me being very proudly half Japanese, I said, that's a Japanese name. And I said, I got to find out, is this guy also half Japanese like myself? So I reached out on Twitter. We started talking. We found out we had a ton in common. Um, Just like my younger brother, Ryan, he was a collegiate deep snapper. He was a deep snapper at Western Michigan University. He was a Bronco, you know, some great football played out there, some action that he was involved in in his collegiate days. And he was also an O-line and special teams coordinator at Northwest High School in Jackson, Michigan. And, you know, longtime listeners of the show know my wife is from Detroit, Michigan. She's like from Livonia. And I spend a lot of time in Michigan. I'm actually going to Michigan. We're filming this around Labor Day. It's going to be released, released later, but I'll, I'll be in Michigan next week. And I'll be at the first game at the big house against Colorado State. So it's my pleasure to welcome 
a new friend. He now he lives in Houston. So this is, this is someone I've met through the show. Excited to get to know him better. But we're going to tell his story today. Please welcome to the show, Kirk Nakama. Thanks, Coach Kovo. I'm I'm happy to be here, and yeah, excited. I've even found out some more. We we have some Austin College connections, maybe too here a little bit. So get out of town. Okay, <laughs> we have a lot of Austin College listeners <laughs> on the Team Player Podcast, so we're going to have to dive into that one. If you're a part of the Team Player Movement, please make sure you have given us a five star review. We're we're well over fifty now. Uh, five star ratings on uh, between Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So wherever you're listening, please give that review. That that ta- or the, the 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 rating takes five seconds. If you want to take one minute, you can write a review. And those are nice, too. And uh, I'll read them on the show. I've been reading them on the show as they come in. You can hit the follow button to subscribe and get all the latest episodes in your queue as soon as they come out every Sunday at at, uh, 2 p.m. And we'd be honored if the Team Player Podcast made it into your rotation. I'm your host, James Kovaleski. You can please follow me on Twitter at Coach underscore Kovo. That's Coach underscore K-O-V-O. All right, Kirk, let's dive into it. You grew up in Santa Clara, California. The thing I know about that, that's where Levi Stadium is at. I've, I've been there. I actually went there randomly. We were on a vacation. We went to the, the Red Box uh, Bowl or whatever, you know. Okay, yeah, it was, yeah. it was uh, Illinois versus Cal. I remember that. And that was my one time in Santa Clara. So just tell us a little bit about what, what was it like growing up in the Bay Area there? Yeah. Um, you know, so growing up, it's, it's the heart of the Silicon Valley. You have, yeah. you know, your tech startups. You have Google, Yahoo, I mean, Facebook, every, you know, what, what you would expect and what you hear about, you know, I feel is, is pretty accurate about Santa Clara and and the Bay Area um, from a tech side of things, you know, you get you get beautiful weather. It's not overly hot. You you don't deal with the winter winter weather um, challenges at all, you know. So it's really it was really a great place to grow up, and um, you know, athletics were a big part of my life. Uh, it's it's what brought my family to the Bay Area. Um, my dad's been a a collegiate baseball coach for over thirty years, and um yeah that's what kind of before I, I was born in in Santa Clara and you know he he had a few coaching stops in the Bay Area and um but yeah it was it was a great great place to to be around um growing up and then also from an athletic side of things that's where I was introduced to to baseball and football um you know being around a lot of great great schools and, and great teams and now I'm curious I'm, I'm gonna take a reach here the baseball connection you say of Austin College, your dad's a baseball coach. I know, remember, our coach uh, at Austin College was Coach Carl Iwasaki. So there was another Japan connection. Is that the connection? That is the connection. So, Very cool. Yep. So my my dad and Carl met uh, at Northern Colorado, where, where Carl played, and my dad was a graduate assistant coach there wow. at the time. Um, so so Carl uh, and his wife, Shelly, they're great family friends of ours. No way. Um, That's awesome. The first time I came to Texas uh, was in the summer of 2005, and I was playing for the Dallas Mustangs baseball organization. I guess it, you know, kind of like a travel travel program. And and my dad had gotten me connected with Carl, and and so he flew me out here that summer to to get me away from home. Hey, you're gonna go compete and go play against, you know, some of the best in Texas, and. Um, I stayed with Carl and um, that whole summer and, you know, we had a few trips up to Austin college and I was running around campus working out this and that um, over that summer while. What while year was, was this? There. Holy cow. What, maybe I was, what, what year was it? <laughs> so this would have been summer of 2005. So June, July, August. Get out of town, man. And I, I, I stayed in Sherman over the summers by that point as I got, and I was working at the physical plant, uh, basically warehouse uh, okay. throughout the summertime. So I was, we actually painted 
one of my one of my responsibilities was to repaint the dorms in the summertime. The, probably the dorms okay. you might have. Well, you're staying with Carl, but if you had stayed in the dorm, yeah, th- that is that is too crazy, man. We might have walked right past each other one summer. Maybe, yeah, man, definitely. unreal. So, so and it's, it, it's it's just so funny that it was a team player podcast that brought us together. You right. know? Yeah. I feel like we're like the stepbrothers. Like, did we just become best friends? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. A lot of connections. Definitely. Yeah. No doubt, yeah. man. No, no doubt. So that's awesome. So your upbringing there in Santa Clara, obviously a cutting edge, you know, trendy area, uh, you know, in the, in the United States. And then, you, you know, you ended up uh, attending St. Francis high, St. Francis high school in Mountain View, California. I looked it up about maybe 20 minutes or so West of San Jose. So, you know, they're in the same area. Um, your head coach was Mike Mitchell. And as you said, you were a two sport athlete with football and baseball. So kind of just tell us now a little more about the, the high school experience for you. Yeah. So it was, it was different for me, um, because I went to public school, you know, kindergarten through eighth grade. And, um, with the connections and relationships that my dad had, he thought, you know, Hey, it would be better to pursue, um, you know, attending a private school with, Mm. from the academics perspective for sure. And then also the athletics as well. Um, again, you know, higher expectations, higher competition. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's, that's how it is in the, in the Bay area with sure. some private schools and public schools. Again, it's, it ranges, but in, in that area. Um, so it was, it was a tough transition for me. You know, I didn't know any other students. Um, mm-hmm. I knew a lot of administrators. I knew a lot of coaches. I knew a lot of staff members, which, which I think, uh, was kind of the underlying reason too for my dad. So, so they could kind of keep an eye on me and help me out with things, which again, I'm, I'm grateful for, but, but it was a tough transition, not, not you know, knowing anybody and, and sure. making friends through athletics. Um, but again, baseball was the priority. Baseball was the, you know, the first love and first passion um, from the athletic side. And I had, just played my first year of Pop Warner in eighth grade. I played quarterback because I could throw, but didn't know anything about football. So I, I didn't play a whole lot. You know, I was a backup quarterback and, um, but again, just to kind of introduce me to football. Um, but then I, I kind of stopped growing height wise, yeah. got a little bit wider and yeah. they were like, well, you can throw. So maybe, maybe you could throw the ball through your legs. And, uh, you know, oh that was, gosh. that was my introduction to long snapping. Um, and really, um, again, it's, you know, kind of some basic instruction at, at the freshman coaching level. And so our varsity long snapper at the time was, was pretty good. Um, so I would, and he was built similar to me. So I, I didn't know him. I didn't talk to him, but I would just watch the varsity practices and, and see how he would snap. And I tried to, imitate my body to be like his and i i kind of naturally picked it up and and got pretty good at it oh i love that kirk and another similarity i also moved i actually moved halfway through my eighth grade year so i started like january of my eighth grade year at a new school which actually our rival school so similar to you kind of like moving in the same area didn't know anybody but that's the power of athletics is so beautiful like i was able to make friends maybe not so much the middle school right at first, but once I got to the high school the next year, then I really started getting in, you know, getting in good with my friend group. And uh, as far as the deep snapping, it's like you said, man, you're you're just like my brother too. Ever since he was a little kid and it doesn't run in the family, I cannot throw. I throw like, I throw a football, like I, like you throw a shot put a shot, you know, I got, I was a shot putter back in the day and I still throw like that. I've got terrible shoulder mobility. And so that's how I throw it. 
but my brother ever as a young kid you could just see like man this kid can throw a tight spiral every time like it's just we it's just like the little kid is just like zinging him in there and like you he, he wasn't he ended up not being quarterback because he was built similar to you he's you know chubbier shorter yeah. um and so he was an offensive lineman as well uh but but again for parents listening and i want to i want to emphasize this i'm assuming the same was the same for you kirk you can correct me or you can wait till we get to the western michigan portion but my brother's education was paid for by deep snapping he was told coming out of high school hey we want you to compete for our deep snap position we're not we cannot scholarship you out of high school but you're going to come in you're going to have the opportunity to compete if you earn the spot we will scholarship you and that is exactly what happened my brother started every single game of his career from freshman through senior year and so he did not have a scholarship in the fall he had to pay for everything but starting in the spring semester of his freshman year they started paying and so i hear i can see the wheels spinning on my listeners right now like college education paid for uh, yes please and so i'm telling you deep snapping it's real and i, I this is not this is not to downgrade baseball but a lot of parents they hitch their wagons to the, oh my my kid's gonna get a baseball scholarship but the thing that i think maybe people don't realize is in the sports world the other sports don't get full scholarships they don't get as many scholarships as football gets so honestly speaking statistically football is your best shot to get in there and long snapping yes it's competitive but it's something that I don't want to say anybody can do it, but it is a learned skill, kind of like Kirk was describing, you know? And so, yes, you need a little bit of talent, natural talent. To, I would say if, if you have a kid that can just throw the ball well, he's probably going to be an opportunity to be a good deep snapper. But let me turn over. You're, I'm, I'm not the expert. Uh, unlike you, or you kind of picked it up in, in high school and learned from an older guy. My brother had the advantage of being the younger brother of a coach. And so I kind of groomed him. He, he was kind of like Todd Marinovich, like the robo quarterback. Like I was grooming him as a young kid to be a robo deep snapper. So I was taking him to Cole's camps as a middle schooler. And that was pretty cool seeing this little middle school kid kind of going toe to toe with high school kids and, and <laughs> doing a pretty good job. But let me turn it over to you. You're the deep snapping expert. I, I've just kind of learned it from watching my brother and things I learned from coaching, but was what I said accurate? I mean, what, what's your philosophy as far as identifying a young deep snapper? Is it, is it just as easy as finding somebody that throws a nice ball or do you, or can, can, even if you don't throw well, do you think there's potential or what, what are some of your thoughts on deep snapping? For myself, right, ha having the natural ability to throw, and and that's when I when I've coached or, or worked with kids. If if I see, yeah, like you said, any sort of natural ability, it, it's it's going to make that transition a little bit easier. Uh, but but doing the camp circuit, so uh, you mentioned the Coles camps. Mm -hmm. I I did uh, camps through Chris Rubio uh -huh. um, in high school, um, and so doing the camp circuit, and and you know you see kids that you watch them warm up and they're throwing and it doesn't look pretty, you know, sure. it's, it's, it's tough looking. Um, but then they kind of, it just makes sense when, you know, they have that guide hand on the ball and they, and they kind of yeah. figure out how to snap. So, um, you know, I think that there's obviously the, the natural throwing motion helps, um, yeah. you know, but, but people that maybe can't, it's, I wouldn't count it out either. You know, if it's, if you, if you, um, kind of do some research and, and play around with it. Uh, you may be able to figure out how to do it. So I, I definitely wouldn't count that out either, but, but the throwing background uh, will help you out for sure. Let me ask you one more question. This, this is a cool transition. So my brother as a high schooler was a, he's an offensive lineman. He was a good offensive lineman. He, I, he was three, uh, two year starter, two time, all district. He's a good six, a offensive lineman here in the Houston area for Fort Ben Travis. But I mean, he was five, nine. I think he might've gotten up to maybe close to two fifty. Cause he's, he's strong, you know, packing on muscle, trying to hang. He wasn't the biggest guy. He had to, he had to be strong and quick. So, but once he got to, once he became exclusively a deep snapper in college, he started transforming his body to get faster. So he could be better on coverage. Right. You know, the protection, there's not much protection really 
at least at least in the schemes he was in you may you may say differently but for what he was doing there there wasn't really much of a protection aspect on short or long snaps it was just snap and go and cover and so he got faster so he could become a better on the coverage and tackling and so he totally transformed his body to where he was pretty ripped uh, as a senior which is kind of cool to watch that transition i'm curious for you whenever uh, we'll talk about western specifically in a second but in general once you became just exclusively a deep snapper no longer an offensive lineman did you did you change did you purposely and mindfully change your body composition or, or was it not much of a factor? Yeah, it did change while I was at Western. So when I was recruited and, and I walked on, um, we were running the pro punt formation, which mm-hmm. requires blocking and protection. So okay. um, I was at about, I came in probably at about 220, got up to around maybe 230, 235 um again just for the for the blocking mm-hmm. protection and, and whatnot um but then halfway through and I was redshirting so I wasn't I wasn't playing but halfway through my redshirt freshman season we switched to the spread shield mm-hmm. punt mm-hmm. which doesn't require protection so um after that first fall um heading into spring ball you know our special teams coordinator was like hey we're, we're gonna stick with this kind of spread formation you know you, you know, you're at 235 right now. I'd like to see you maybe get down, uh, you know, into the 220s. And then, you know, I guess we'll kind of gauge it from there and, and see, you know, hey, if we want to get you down even more or right, um, right. and change it from there. So, but yeah, I definitely uh, went through kind of a, a gain phase and then, a, a you know, a, a training phase to, cool. you know, to kind of trim down and, and to be able to to be more of a factor in coverage. Yeah. One question before we get to the Western Michigan, I, I did want to ask this question. Your dad, the name that I saw was Nakama. And I thought, man, that, that is, that's a Japanese name. And so I'm curious, you know, we, we talked about Masaki. Masaki was actually born in Japan like myself. I, I was born in Tokyo. Um, I forget the name of the Mas- Masaki's town, uh, but it, it's just a little bit southwest of Tokyo. Uh, so we were both born there and came to the United States later. So his mom and my mom are both, they're native Japanese. You know, they, they were the ones that left everything behind learned English, you know, live the American dream. I'm curious for you, were you, are you in a similar situation? Was your, is your father, uh, you know, born in Japan or, or, or had he, is he more Americanized or kind of what was, what's your background in relationship with Japan? Um, so my dad was, was born and raised in, in Hawaii. He was born oh, and raised okay. on Oahu. Um, Very cool. his parents as well. So my grandparents were both born and raised in Hawaii. Um, and then I saw then if you, so in the great grandparents, I think that's where the migration I see. happened. Um, so, man, I don't even know what year, you know, that would sure, have been, sure, sure. but um, yeah. So I guess, so I, that puts me as, you know, third to fourth generation, you know, Japanese born right. in, in the States. So um, I've never been to Japan. That's, that's something on, on my list. And, you know, as a family, we've talked about, you know, Hey, that would be cool for us all to go. And, and do that trip um, just because, yeah, you know, it's been three, four generations uh, yeah. in the States. Yeah. And so Japanese, n- n- as far as to language, no, yeah. I, I've, I've dabbled with some of the apps and some of these sure. tools, but haven't, haven't fully committed yet. So I'll yeah. keep that in my back pocket. <laughs> it, it's surprisingly easy to learn like the speaking portion, but of course the written, I, I don't, I wouldn't even, <laughs> I couldn't even lay a glove on it, you know, but I, I even, I unfortunately am not fluent in Japanese and I, and I, I really regret that in a sense because my mom, my mom's, you know, native Japanese, that's her first language, but just growing up here, 
I did, I lived in Japan for one year. And so it wasn't really long enough for me to really fully integrate there. And then I think once she came here, she was so focused on trying to get ahead in America that she was just quickly trying to, uh, you know, um, kind of, uh, I don't know what the term is, but, uh, you know, acclimatize to the culture and, and, and fit in and learn English and, you know, perfect her English. So, and my dad isn't a native speaker, so I didn't hear it like kind of them. So I, I know very little Japanese, unfortunately, but I love it. I love Japan. I'm extremely proudly Japanese. Like, I, I explain to people, no one can ever understand this. And, and you may not feel quite the same way as I do, having not been born there, but I'm very team USA and everything. But I have to be honest. And my wife's like, well, it doesn't get it. And sometimes or people don't understand. But when team USA and Japan face off, I root for team Japan. And it's not something I can necessarily explain other than it's just something inside of me that I feel that way. And I don't know if it's just the underdog aspect of it or, or you know, pride in country, but I feel that way. I'm, I'm very proudly Japanese. I follow a lot of Japanese sports. Like I follow Nippon, Nippon Pro Baseball, the Japanese uh, okay, Pro Baseball yeah. League. I actually kind of follow it. Yeah. I try to keep up with what's going on. Uh, I love, um, you know, guys like Ichiro, obviously one of my all-time greats. Otani, just love all the success he's having. I'm curious for you. Do you feel a, a pride for Japan or is it something It's a part of your story, but obviously you're a little more removed. I'm just curious your, your thoughts on, on, on Japan on, on, the, on the, the bigger scale of athletics. Yeah, I, I definitely have have that pride for it. And especially, I think, with the introduction and, and the history and the culture of Japanese baseball, yeah. um, you know, and then that's right, a lot of my family background. So I think, yeah. you know, the early 2000s when when there was Ichiro and there was, um, you know, a handful of other players coming to the major leagues around that time, um, you know, that that pride continued to grow. And um and again, the success, you know, whether it's the World Baseball Classic and, you know, Japan had won that, that a handful of times. And, you know, again, the the success, it, it definitely, um, you know, stirs that that emotion and that pride of, of the Japanese culture for sure. Um, so, yeah, I would I would say in a sense, I, I'd probably agree, like um, in maybe like whether it's Olympic sports settings or, you know, like I mentioned, the World Baseball Classic, you know, I, I would I would cheer for Japan for sure, definitely. Oh, so we're on the same page. And I, I, yeah. I'm very patriotic. I'm very proudly American. For sure, but it, yeah. It, it, I think it's just something that you can't understand it unless you've kind of lived it. Unless you have lived where you have that a, a strong tie of another country. I, I just think you probably can't understand it. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to see that you feel, you know, the same way about that. So very cool story about your background. But let's talk about Western Michigan. Was your experience similar to my brother so my brother like had no scholarship offers you know he was considering walking on to the university of houston as a, as a long snapper just trying there but really it was not like a preferred walk on or anything like that. They, they talked a little bit yeah you know come give it a shot but it was central oklahoma that was more serious about it that actually talked a little bit of like hey you win the job we give you scholarship had good meetings with the coaches and this was all a result of them uh they got it from the coles camp they saw what he did at a national Coles camp in Whitewater, Wisconsin. And that's how they reached out to him was his, his, uh, his performance at that national camp. So I'm curious, did you have a similar experience or, or how did you come, how'd you come across Western Michigan? So my recruiting process was a little bit different. Um, so I went to my first uh, Rubio camp the, uh, after my junior season. Mm. So at that time, so that would have been 2007, fall of 2007. Um, but right, I was already a junior. And I think at that time, I, I probably got in at the right time. But like, if you look at these classes now, and, and maybe even for your brother's sake, how many long snappers are on these websites, you know, whether it's Coral, whether it's Rubio, there's, it, yeah. 
there's hundreds and hundreds of kids. Whereas I think when I got in, it was still maybe a little bit, I guess there was enough time. I wouldn't say it was necessarily early because some kids start, you know, middle school or, or their yeah. early years in high school. Um, so I guess I'll say like from that sense, maybe I was a little bit late. I would agree. To, I would to, agree. To a little bit out, later for guys that are doing that level of snapping. Yeah. To, to find out if, if it was an opportunity sure. uh, for me. So, so how my recruiting process started is once I kind of was able to put together a, a DVD to send out and, and to share with coaches, um, we, we started at division three. We're just like, let's just start yeah, here sure. and, and yeah. go up from there. So, um, again, my dad, my dad had relationships, um, um, you know, with coaches, whether, whether it was football coaches, baseball coaches to kind of get us in connection, right. With, with who, um, we needed to talk to. Right. So as soon as we got some feedback from some division three schools, they were like, yep, you could come, you can do this. There was no money. Right. But sure. They were like, if you want to play, there's a spot. Okay, perfect. So then from there, we kind of were like, well, let's let's try again. Let's move up a level. And the the Division Two football scene in California is might be non-existent, you know, yeah, at, at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my dad had a relationship with the baseball coach at Wofford University um, in South Carolina. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so they're one double or FCS football. Sure. Yep. Um, but so we got my tape in front of them and got a lot of positive feedback and they were like, Hey, you know, there's, there's an opportunity. We'd love to talk more uh, again, no money. Right. It was all walk on um, opportunities. Um, so then I, at there, at that point I was like, wow, this, you know, this is an FCS program. They have success. They, they compete. Um, and then, so then my dad was like, Hey, I know the strength coach at Western Michigan, uh, Nate peoples, who was the strength coach at Stanford, while helping with the baseball team so they there was a good relationship there um so he was like i can i can reach out to coach peoples and and see if he can pass on your tape to their special teams coordinator um so he did and and again we got some feedback from them so it was really down to those two schools uh western michigan and, and wofford and mm -hmm. um it, it kind of got to the point where western was able to have a camp spot for me so I would get there early and have a chance to compete for the backup spot. Cause they had a rising senior, but okay. so red shirt, uh, and then, and then compete after that. That's um, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and then Wofford because FCS had smaller, there were like rules for how many kids you can bring to camp for fall camp. They said, uh, we probably wouldn't be able to have a camp spot for you, but you could come when school starts and compete. Mm. And it, it was a good opportunity be, because I felt like I could compete and play right away there. But the way that their so their school started later, they were on a quarter, so they would start later, mm. but the football season would start right Labor Day weekend. So, so you would have been way behind everybody else. I would miss fall camp. I'd miss a couple of games. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, it was, yeah. it was just a tough situation. And, and again, like no, no hard feelings like you know it's it worked out the way it was sure. supposed to but um and then i i ended up getting waitlisted admissions wise to get into the school as well so mm. that, that, yeah. um, that, that kind of helped make my decision as yeah. well but um yeah so then ended up walking on at western uh i got to travel as the backup snapper that that yeah. first year um which was cool provided me to learn from from the tom harrington who was our senior snapper and you know got to learn and, and see how he 
you know, prepared himself to see how he. So you could dress practice. too. You could travel and dress. Just yep. Obviously, if you if you had to go into the game in emergency, then you'd burn your red shirt. Right. Yep. Yeah. Because yeah. I always wonder that, like in pregame, you know, you see that there's usually two to three deep snappers for a college working on their craft, you know, before the game, you know, getting long toss in or whatever, and getting all warmed up, and then split off. You know, one of them might do the short snaps, one might go do deep snaps. But I always kind of wonder that, like. You know, are, are all these guys like they all have eligibility right now? Are they red shirted and just you know shadowing like you were doing? So that's that's pretty cool. I never really, I guess, I never thought too hard about that aspect. But that totally makes sense. Yeah. So the the plan was right for me to red shirt, you know, but I would travel in, in emergency cases, yeah. which the rule back, you know, there's that new rule now where you can play up to four games and yeah. still get a red shirt. Yeah. So, but that wasn't in place then. So luckily, that didn't happen. You know. Um, you know, I didn't have to burn my red shirt year, but then, um, going, so then, yeah, as I got to red shirt, got to learn, um, and really had a great, great experience learning from Tom, who was a senior, mm-hmm. uh, at the time. And, but then going into the spring and even the next fall, they, there was another long, there were two other long snappers that oh, okay. they brought in because, yeah. uh, you know, again, there was, there was, I guess, confidence to an extent, but then also there was still no game experience for myself, sure. uh, for the other long snapper. So they did bring in another uh, long snapper. Competition. Who... Competition is yep, always good exactly. too. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so then going into my redshirt freshman season, um, the new long snapper they brought in had, had won the job. And so he started that first year. So you know, I was, I was in the backup role again. I was traveling, dressing, yeah. everything like that. Um, but now I'm like, okay, this guy's the same age as me. He, he was a true freshman or he, he was a true freshman. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. um, you know, so I think there were some challenges with that mentally and sure. personally, yeah. um, yeah. It, you know, so anyway, so then, um, I guess fast forward, right to the end towards the end of that season um the true freshman ended up getting sick and right had to like sit out the mm. next two three games so um so i start i finished the season finished those three games uh didn't have any issues right so now i have game tape you know and i'm like okay maybe maybe i can go transfer now you know um yeah. just because again you know i i i was you wanted to get on the field and I mean, right. transfer portal wasn't quite so lenient then I'm sure it is now, but he's still, it was an option. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so at that time, my dad was coaching at the university of Washington and wow. I was like, and really? um, yeah. What, yep. what, so in he, what capacity? Uh, he was an assistant baseball coach. So wow, he was at Stanford. Cool. Yep. Yeah. And then when I graduated, he um, took a job at the university of Washington when they had a staff change and was, was the associate head coach Very cool. at the university of Washington. So, you know, a chance for him to move up in his profession and, um, you know, he loves that area. And so it was again, just a, a good opportunity for him. But so at that point he was like, Hey, if you want, you know, I can, and I don't know legally what the rules were mm. <laughs> issues, but there was, there was conversations, you know, and it was just like, Hey, if you want, like, <laughs> are we going to have takeaway bowl victories now because of you, Kirk, it, what, what's <laughs> yeah. happening here? Like, well, so there were no bowl <laughs> victories. Yeah. Pull Reggie Bush here, we're take away. <laughs> but I'm so he was, it was, there was a conversation and I thought about it and I was yeah. like, well, you know, I was like, we, so we had our exit meeting 
at the end of that season. And our special teams coordinator was like, Hey, Kirk, you know, you did a great job finishing the season for us. You know, um, we're really pleased with, you know, just willing to step up, you performed all these things. And, and so he's like, you know, he's like going into the spring. He's like, I think I could see this being a, a legitimate competition again, you know, basically opening it back up for, for competition heading into spring ball with me and the true freshman. And so, you know, I was already, I was finishing up, I was a year and a half done with school and I was like, well, like if I transfer, maybe credits don't transfer this and that. And, um, I was like, you know, I'll just, I'll stake it out. I'll compete and, and see what happens. So, um, going into that spring, we, we competed back and forth, back and forth. And, um, the special teams coordinator said, Hey, at the end of spring ball, he said, Hey, Kirk, if, if we were to play tomorrow, he's like, you would start. He's like, but again, you know, we'll, we'll reevaluate as we start fall camp, this and that. And Mm -hmm. so he shared the same thing with the other true freshmen. And, um, you know, I think the true freshman was looking to get a scholarship and Mm -hmm. everything like that. And there wasn't, you know, was no scholarship to give. And so he ended up transferring. Um, and then, so then I, I stayed and, you know, I went into fall camp and was the starter, then started that red shirt sophomore season um at still as a walk-on but then going into my redshirt junior season was awarded a scholarship for for my last two seasons so oh that's awesome man it, it's you know now you see those viral videos of, of the walk-on getting the scholarship and yeah. you know uh maybe back in the day it wasn't such a big deal this coach has quietly awarded you your scholarship or or what was that like yeah so it was, <laughs> it was a little different and as i shared my story i kind of found out that um so Bill Cubitt was our head coach at Western Michigan at the mm-hmm. time. And he kind of, it seemed like he kind of regularly used this, but he would, we would have a team meeting. He would walk in very frustrated and very, you yeah. know, looking angry. He points to me and he calls me out and he says, Hey, come with me. Like almost like as I'm like in trouble or I did something yeah. wrong. So we walk out. So everyone's still in the locker or in the team meeting room. He walks me out into the locker room and he's like, he's like, do you know what you did? Like you mm-hmm. like, it you know, kind of like plays this up. So then he calls my dad and as, and while he's on the phone with my dad, he tells my dad that he's going to award me a scholarship Wow! and and put me on scholarship. And then, you know, so then I was able to talk to my dad for a little bit after that, which was, um, you know, just a really special moment. But then, so then we go back into the team meeting room and before that he goes, he goes, all right. He's like, I'm going to walk in and kind of play it up like you you screwed up or you did something wrong and then yeah. you're gonna make it seem like you're gonna apologize to the team or something and love it uh but then I you know I shared with the team that you know I um you know coach Cubit put me on scholarship and um you know the whole team meeting room goes nuts and yeah and it was it was special but yeah definitely definitely didn't go viral which again it would I, today know, I, today today they would have they'd have like their their marketing team there of like tripods and cameras and filming it and, <laughs> yeah you, you'd be trending yeah. on twitter right now kirk as long as never gets his scully oh man and, i mean one thing i'm curious about so either from the you know in that first camp when when the in the true freshman beat you out for the job or in spring ball whenever you even the score what is a deep snapping competition like? I'm curious. Was it was it very regimented where there was like a set number of reps that they were like grading and actively the coach is like right there watching it? Or was it a little more of just like the coach's gut feeling who he felt was better? You know what I mean? Like how were the reps split? Were both of you getting equal reps with the first team? Or 
I'm just curious about that aspect of it. Or is it even like there's stuff going on on the sidelines whenever the rest of the team is practicing that they're, that they're grading you guys, you know, or is all of your competition happening, you know, in live team segments? I'm really curious about how, how, how a deep snapping competition is structured. Ours was very regimented and, and structured. And yeah, I think it was mostly during like all the live reps um, when, right when it actually counted. And so, um, yeah, so we would split, you know, and it's tough even too. like during spring ball, the special teams emphasis might not be there as sure. much as it is in season, you know, so it's, it, I think it was for us because again, the, the situation and the circumstances. So, yeah, so we had even reps, um, field goal, field goal periods and punt periods. Um, everything was filmed from as many angles as you can get and you know it was timed it was charted um and and the special teams coordinator he did that all like after practice right so everything was filmed he'd go back watch the film he'd time it chart it he had a little strike zone cut out you know so i was was wondering there's like a spray chart that he's he's working (laughs) off of and it sounds like you had a good special teams coordinator that was willing to do it right yeah, uh, Mike Sabach, he was he was the yeah. special teams coordinator, and he's he was a special teams coordinator for years uh, at Northern Illinois, at Western Michigan. Yep. Um, you know, so yeah, he'd been he had been doing it for 15, 20 years. So he he definitely had had a system and and process and uh, in place. So he yeah he definitely did a great job. You know, just handling it all, I guess, properly and correctly, and in a way where it was like he couldn't he wouldn't have room to lean one way or the other if he had a gut feel because it was right. all charted because i like it was that all i respect that it pro- proofs in the pudding that's, that's what i always liked about being a thrower you know football is my main sport but i threw the shot in the off season i love that there, there's no there is no uh leeway there, there's no gray area you know whatever my distance yeah. was is my distance you know and so i, I kind of like that about deep snapping too you know there maybe there is some subjectivity to it as far as grading I don't know the accuracy. Maybe there's a slight, but the time there's definitely not, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, uh, yeah. so I think that, I think that's really cool. And I'm curious, was it open to where there was a potential that one of you could earn the starting, you know, short snapping position and one of you could earn the starting long snapping position, or was it kind of understood that like, it's, it's a, it's a two for kind of deal Wh- whoever wins it is going to be our guy for both. Or, or was there an opportunity for, for you guys to split? And I'm curious, had you split, had you split and one of you was starting a long snapper, one of you starting a short snapper, would you have split? Would you have left? Or would you think he would have left? <laughs> you yeah, know? that's, that's a good point. I, I, I don't, it never crossed my mind. Right. I see. Um, and, and it was never brought up in, in our position meetings or, or anything like that, that, Hey, you know, maybe we could do it this way where, where guys split. Um, I think the expectation was that you'll do both. Um, and it is interesting because, uh, you know, we can, we can touch on this a little bit later too, but so my, my brother who was a long snapper at the university of Hawaii, yeah. he just did PATs and field goals and there was right. somebody else that did punts, you exactly. know? So, so yeah. I know it works. I know, I know programs do it. Um, but yeah, I think in our case, um, you know, I think it was to do both. And, um, I guess in the case, if, if it was split and where I was doing one and, and the other guy was doing another, I, I probably would have stayed. I yeah. think I was staying regardless when, when I committed to uh, just between the conversation between me and my dad and we're like, Hey, you know, what do you want to do? Um, you know, I think at that point I was like, I'm this far into school. I'm just going to stick it out, you know, and whatever happens happens. But um, 
yeah, yeah, definitely. I guess that would have made a, an interesting uh, situation if, if that was the case to split between the two. Kirk, a couple more questions here. You know, as far as deep snapping technique, I got one question for you. I mean, I, I coach for 11 years. I do a lot of broadcasting now. So I watch a lot of football, obviously. And at the high school level, I don't think you'll see this much of the pros, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. You've seen higher level deep snapping up close than I have. A lot of guys at the high school level, they'll actually kind of lift the ball up and in front of them off the ground a little bit and then throw it through their legs. You know, and my brother, I remember when he was taught uh, Shane Hackney, the snap doctor was kind of mm -hmm. his initial teacher. We, we bought like a, a training uh, via, it might've been VHS actually the first <laughs> thing that we bought when my brother started, but um, he was real big on, you don't want to do that because that is taking time. If you are going to lift up the ball first off the ground, you're moving the wrong direction, right? You want all your momentum going, you know, towards the target. And so my brother from the beginning trained not to do that. So he never had to do that. But a lot of guys feel more comfortable, you know, kind of picking the ball off the ground first and then throwing it. I'm curious your thoughts on that technique or have, have you seen elite deep snappers be able to do that? Or is it more everybody, you know, just immediately snaps it from the ground? I think I've seen both um, yeah. with, with the picking it up and kind of, I, right. I think they call that like a hitch or at least yeah. I would call that a hitch. Um, it takes more time. I, I think it also gives you more room for error because you're moving you're more moving parts right so sure. more sure. more chance sure. to maybe you you sail it high maybe you miss low um i was the same way where i tried to work straight back immediately um again just for time's sake you know if you, if you pick up on if you pick up on that habit right on film whether you're you know if you if guys see it like in the game or or you know if it's able to be seen on film I, that's something that you can kind of pick up on. Right. Um, and when from the punt return or the punt rush team, you know, to kind of tip your snap when you're, when you're about to snap it. So um, I, I think it's, uh, it's probably safer to work straight back. Uh, you know, again, I kind of am a more conservative approach athlete in general. Um, but I mean, if you're able to pick it up and, you know, get it back there and, I mean, I've seen guys do that and they're, you know, under seven tenths of a second, which I mean, that still gives you plenty of time for the punter. Um, I guess the counter argument for that, maybe, maybe those guys are saying they can put more velocity on it since they're getting a little more range of motion that they can actually put a little more speed on it. So that they make yeah. up the time they lost with the hitch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that would, I would agree with that. That would be my, my argument as well is, you know, if you're, if, if you're that fast, then keep doing it that fast, you know? Sure. I, I, so yeah, I mean, that's that would be my stance on it. What was yeah. your style? Were, were you were you were you a velo guy? I mean, were you a power snapper? Or were you more of just hey, I'm precision, I'm accurate, I'm consistent, or or a mixture? Kind of what, what what did you see your style of deep snapper as? Yeah, I I definitely uh, I was a more precision accuracy. I mean, yeah. I was I was fast enough. You were the Greg Maddox of deep snappers, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think so. I think realistically punters i think their target is 1.2 seconds so from their catch to kick is 1.2 seconds mm. and so realistically if you're under eight tenths of a second as long as everything goes smoothly should be good right yeah. as the total operation is two seconds so that that's what we shot for was total op two seconds or under mm -hmm. um so then you know we would kind of just work on that rhythm. And so again, if you don't miss and, and you have that accuracy, 
then the punter can be that much faster with, with their operation. So, you know, I was probably around like a 0.77, 0.78, like at my best, which, which again, works, gets the job job done, especially if you don't miss, Um, you know, but then, I mean, there's other guys that are, they're sub 0.7 and they're just freaks of nature when it comes to snapping. I'm sure every coach, yeah, I'm sure every coach (laughs) will tell you though, they'd rather have a guy that's 0.78 every time than a guy that's a a 0.67, but sometimes the ball is is off target. Right. You know, they'll yeah. take that every day of the week and twice on Sundays, I'm sure. But yeah. I'm sure NFL guys though, what, what kind of, what kind of a operation time we talking? Is it every, they're all under 0.7 or I'm curious for NFL guys. Do you know like what, what they're at? Yeah. I mean, my, my guess would be those, those guys are all, they're definitely sub seven, three, I would say sure, sure, would, sure. would be my guess, um, you know, without putting a clock on them. But yeah, I mean, the, what they're able to do, uh, you know, is, is very impressive for sure. Let me ask you this too, Kirk, as far as the, the coverage aspect, like I told you, my brother trying to get better at his punt coverage skills. When you're evaluating deep snappers, do coaches mainly just focus on who's the better snapper or does your athletic ability and your tackling ability and coverage, does that, does that tip the scales at all? Do, you know, do some coaches say, Hey, I just need a guy that can get it back there. I really want a guy that's, that's fast and athletic and covers. So he's going to get the edge in my book. I'm, I'm really curious about that what you've seen because you've been a coach of your special you've been a special teams coordinator you've you've been in big position battles of good special teams coaches at the uh, you know at the division one level is there any focus on the coverage aspect or is it mainly they just focus on the deep snapping coverages you know take whatever they can get for coverage i think now in the college game it's definitely more of a factor because of the spread puns because Mm. of you know the free releases that the snapper gets um you know i i think that is a factor um but again the the first job is is to get the snap back there accurately and um you know for the operation so i definitely was not the fastest guy by any means Uh, you know i'm i'm five seven on a good day i'm i'm not covering Mm. ground you know (laughs) like like some other guys so and plus you know in our at western we had some great great gunners that could get off the line and and get downfield and and we had great punters too to you know to um really help with the hang time and, and really help our, our coverage unit. So, uh, you know, I, I had a couple of tackles. Um, I wasn't, a, you know, a huge factor in coverage, but I think definitely more, I mean, especially with how good returners are now and, and how the game is evolving, you know, you want, you want someone who can at least, you know, maybe trip him up or, or make him take an extra step. So then sure. the next guy in. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think at the college level, hundred percent um, would look at someone who can cover. Um, but it's also a little bit of a cherry on top. There, there's no scheme in America where they're relying on the deep snapper to be the correct. first guy down there to make, <laughs> if, if yeah. that's what's happening, if you're consistently, <laughs> your deep snapper is your first guy there, you're probably not a very good punt coverage unit. Right. Right. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's more so added bonus than sure, a sure, requirement. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll never forget Kirk, my brother's first game on varsity snapping or not, not as, not his first game, but, so he started as a sophomore, right? So his first game, like I, I wasn't able to actually watch it, you know, but I, I was coaching. Um, but eventually, like the team I was coaching played my brother's team. We we're in oh, dis- wow. district okay. rivals. And so like th- I was on pins and needles leading up to this game. I was coaching at Fort Bend Clements. My brother played for Fort Bend Travis. And so like I saw that on my schedule just coming closer and closer and closer. And, I, you know, the coaches all know that the deep snapper is Kobo's younger brother. And so they're kind of talking, you know, talking trash to me and kind of ra- razzing me a little bit and, we had this stud middle linebacker that ended up going to Tulane 
uh, Ray Ottman. And so they would have him stand right over the deep snapper on punts and intimidate him. And just, it, he's pretty imposing. I mean, mm-hmm. he really was extremely yeah, yeah. good. And so, and get this Kirk, of course. So my, my little sophomore brother got Ray Ottman standing over him playing against a big district rival where his older brother is a coach. It's freaking raining. Of uh, course yeah. it's raining. Yep. <laughs> and so he had every single, he had every single, uh, you know, uh, factor against him. But I, this is where I, I kind of had a feeling this guy could could play in college. Nailed every single snap. That's every awesome. single yeah. time. Put it right on the hip, and 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 they did good. But my question is, I always remember my brother would kind of tell me, when it's raining, forget about velocity, just get it there. You know, because there's going to be games where it's mud and wet and raining, and the, the ball is heavier. You you don't want to risk a mistake. His his focus was, I'm just I'm not snapping it as hard but I'm really just focused on, on my follow through my accuracy and I'm getting it there. Curious your thoughts in the rain, any kind of differences in mechanics or. Yeah. So I would, I would, I would basically almost like choking up. Right. So I would, yep, I would hold right. the ball closer the to, the, to the tip. Yeah. Um, and again, like I, I have smaller hands, you know, so again, I, that, that helped me as well, but yeah, I would, I would, kind of, I would choke up a little bit more on the ball and then I would really kind of cup my right hand underneath the ball just to hold on to it a little bit better. Yeah. Um, and again, yeah. In, in, so in California, never had any issue snapping. There was was one game where it was just, uh, it was a brutal, we were playing on a, on a grass field and it was all mud and and that was a mess. I mean, I don't even think we even tried to punt. I think we just were like, let's just go for it on fourth down because we ended up in like a zero, zero tie. Um, you know, so that was my only high school experience, but playing in the Mac, you know, you're, you're going Ohio, Illinois, Michigan. I mean, you're going to get bad weather. Uh, I think I, the bigger factor though, was snapping against the wind or the wind crossing, you know, that, that was probably more of a factor that, that I had to snap in or against, but definitely with the rain. Yeah. A couple, couple was it a big deal or not, not, not as much. (sighs) Not really. There were two games where I played in snow, but it wasn't like, it was like flurry nothing or, crazy. Ice, I got or raining or yep. freezing rain, you yep. know, so nothing, you. yeah, where they're shoveling the field. Was it difficult though, if your hand, because obviously like your hands are important in this and just, to, I'm sure they're freezing. Did you have like the, you know, the heat, the heat pack inside of you, like your hand warmers or I'm yep. curious how you kept your hands. Yeah, you did. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So that was, that was a, a definite guarantee. And, you know, on the sideline, they have the, the heater. So yep. I, yeah, I'm trying to to stay warm as much as possible and keep my hands in the, in the hand warmer as, as long as possible. So, and I I hope I'm not boring some of the listeners of this, but I just think it's, um, I'm hoping if some of you have kids that are, I want you to listen to this and kind of learn some of the intricacies of deep snapping. And if you're interested, pursue this, we've talked about, you know, both Kirk and my brother myself, and we're not elite athletes. We're not, you know, (laughs) but, but, but Kirk and my brother, don't have the same student loan debt that you know that, that many people do because they they earn scholarships of their deep snapping ability so la- last thing i want to talk about my brother was just awesome he had a little pvc pipe uh and a tarp that he built a target and you know he he would work on this target in the backyard every day he would also just lay on his back when he's watching tv and just work on you know spiraling the ball over his head over and over just to get that and i think that's good for a young kid just to get that feeling of following through and spinning the mm-hmm. ball and one of the coolest drills I watched him do, he kind of called, I think he got it from Shane Hackney, the snap doctor, but he called it something like the pressure drill or whatever, you know, game on the line drill, but he would, he would go to different spots and snap in, in like t- of timing where there was like a clock going and you have to hit, okay. repetitive, yeah. you know, run to a new spot, hit us. It was something of that nature. We'd have to get off like 
you know, five quick snaps, or he would practice like running, sprinting from a point, which was simulating the sideline, like on a last second field goal when you don't have timeouts, like just get on the field. He would work on all that kind of stuff in the backyard as a young kid. So I just thought that was really cool. And so I'm just curious for you, Kirk, any, any cool little drills you can share with the listeners if they, if they have a young kid, they're trying to learn deep snapping, maybe a, just something you did that to help you get to your level. Yeah. The, the biggest thing for me, and it's tough, right? Because um, it, it's something very individualized. Like if, you know, you don't have somebody that knows what to look for or how to help coach you up, you know, it's what are these drills that can give me the feel that I need to feel. Um, so yeah, all those that you mentioned are great. Um, the big one that I did, it was while I was in college and while I was competing, um, I would go into our indoor facility at Western Michigan and I would lower the batting cage because I didn't, I didn't have anybody to catch. Like I was yeah. you know, going in at odd times, weird times just to get any practice I could. So I would lower the batting cage and there was like the strike zone target yeah. on the back tarp for, for baseball. Right. So I was like, okay, there's my target. Right. And then what I would do is maybe three, about three yards behind where the ball was set. I had a hurdle. Um, so I would snap it under the hurdle but then hopefully still hit the strike zone. Love it. Very cool. And so so that way you're not floating it, I guess you're trying to get that quick, you know, trajectory just straight to the point. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if I was able to snap it under the hurdle, um, then I would, I would keep that trajectory. Um, and, and yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't I love that. Sail it. And that's then, a great idea. Any coaches list. Cause I have, I have tons of coaches that listen. This is the way you can improve your deep snapping game. This is great. This yeah. Is gold and, right here. and, and then, um, you know, and then as I followed through on my snap, I could see where the ball ends up. So I could see, okay, I hit the strike zone, you know, or, Oh, I was a little bit left, a little bit right. Or I missed low, but then the, also the good thing with that hurdle is, and, and depending on, coaches um preference on this but for me i was like if i'm if if as long as i don't hit the hurdle i know i'm not going to miss high if i miss low i'm giving my punter a chance to to field the ball now obviously you don't you never want that to happen but that's what i liked about using that hurdle as well is that it keeps my trajectory and if i happen to miss i'm gonna miss low bingo Um, that's the common that is the common consensus right Kirk I mean that's always what I'd heard talking to my brother and hearing coaches like they'd prefer you miss low for exactly at least the punter has a chance when you shoot it over their head there ain't no chance you know you're done yeah yep yeah (laughs) okay very very cool now any good memories from Western Michigan just any big because I mean you've had some several NFL players come out of there and you know some really high draft picks any any just good memories that you have so I I, I mentioned, and I thought about this after, after we had previously talked, um, before, but my, the most nervous I was ever snapping mm-hmm. was, uh, not in a game I have been thrown, you know, I've been thrown into games late, you know, yeah. um, I've been in not game winning field goal, but like, you know, field goal under time or under pressure, mm-hmm. um, you know, punts in the back of the end zone. Yeah rain I've, I've dealt with all that and and similar to your brother's experience like i was never shaken by that i was able to get the plays off no issues the most nervous i was snapping was in 2010 2011 after the green bay packers had won the super bowl whatever year that was mm-hmm. greg jennings had came back to western michigan yeah. and he was filming they were doing like a little uh, almost like a home you know espn home not espn but espn would do those homecoming shows where yeah. You know, they go back. And so 
it was just a local show, but Greg Jennings was with the film crew and they're walking around campus and um, me, the punter and the kicker were in the indoor facility, just kind of getting our reps in and, you know, it was the off season and in comes Greg Jennings with this camera crew and he starts talking to us and he was like, Hey, uh, why don't you snap me? Like, you know, so we had our kicker kick him a ball and he caught it and returned it and our punter punted him one. And um, he was like, Hey, let me catch a snap from you. And like, I'm so nervous because I'm like, this is Greg Jennings. (laughs) This is getting filmed. Um, And you know, that's, that was the most nervous I was snapped. Cause I was like, if I, if I miss this, like this is being recorded, you know? Yeah. And, um, and you know, I, I got the snap off fine and everything, but yeah, I guess that's just a, a fun story where, you know, people often ask me like, Oh, were you ever nervous in a game or, or whatever these situations were? And I was like, actually the, the only time I was the most nervous was, was away from the a live game. And uh, you know, when Greg Jennings had, had came back to campus and uh, asked me to snap a football to him. <laughs> Hey, I'm going to cut that clip and I'm going to use that to promote this episode. I'm going to tag Greg Jennings. If we can get a retweet from Greg Jennings, that would just <laughs> make my whole podcasting career worth it. I think that that that's awesome, man. I got to ask, you know, my brother had the, had the good fortune. He never had a quote unquote bad snaps. I mean, some of them weren't up to his expectation where he wanted it, but he never, mm-hmm. he never had one go over the head or everything that, you know, they were, they got to the punter, they got to the holder. Now he, he has been a part of punts that were blocked that did happen a few times in his career where there was punts blocked, but, you know, looking at the film, the snap was fine. It was just, there was other issues, you know, in in the uh, operation time, but I got to ask you, did you ever have a bad one? Did you ever double, double hop one back there or over the head or or been part of blocks? I'm just curious. Some of the, some of the bad things that deep snappers have to deal with, which it sucks because deep snappers kind of like a kicker or even worse. Cause at least kickers get a big clap whenever they make a hard field goal. Like a deep <laughs> yep. snapper gets zero credit when they do awesome stuff. 99% of the time. But the one time you sail one, everybody knows about it. I'm curious for you. Any not to bring up rehash, bad memories, but did you were ever part of something bad? Um, nothing. So nothing ever over the head. And, and, and this is how I, when I share with people, cause it, it comes up a lot. I said, sure. nothing, nothing that ever led to the other team scoring points. Right. Um, okay. Yep. So, yep. So I, I was thankful for that. There were a couple of times, you know, where I skipped one back there. And again, I, I, had, I had great athletic punters and, and they yeah. bailed me out, you know. Yeah. Um, so for the most part, everything went according to plan. Um, you know, again, a, a couple that I definitely remember and, you know, to the fan, they would maybe notice, oh, yeah, that's uh, not the greatest snap. But um at the end of the day, nothing, nothing that led to points for, for the opponent. So that brings up one more thing. You talked about, you know, I had great athletic punters, like, you know, the, the brotherhood, the camaraderie with the specialists. I remember my brother, he had an Australian punter, you mm-hmm. know? And so it was pretty cool having an Australian guy, an Aussie, uh, but him, they would like in pregame, you know, cause my brother's half Japanese, they would bow to each other. It was part of like, you know, the little ritual, fun stuff that they would do, you know, just get warmed up for the game. And then his, his punter later on in his career, they're, they're best of friends. Uh, mm-hmm. that this partner was in my brother's wedding and that they're, they're still great friends. And so it's a tight knit unit, a, you know, a snapper and his punter. It's, I'm not saying which one's the dog, but it's like, it's like a guy and his best friend, his dog. Yeah. <laughs> like they're, they're, they're just, they're, they're just, they're, they're at the hip, you know, that I'm curious for you. Did you have a similar experience where you were really close with, you know, with your specialist unit? Yeah, definitely. And, and it worked out, um, you know, I guess probably the best for my um, growth as, as an athlete and even as a, as a teammate, um, I had great leadership under older specialists when I first got there. Um, and then as they kind of graduated and moved on, I got to be the, you know, the older mentor to our younger kicker and punter who came in, yeah. 
um, towards the end of my career at Western. So, um, but yeah, I, I mean, you know, you, you spend all the time with them, whether you're waiting for meetings, whether mm-hmm. it's in between meetings, whether it's, you know, Hey, practice is going on, but we're going to go in the indoor. I mean, yeah, you spend a ton of time together. Um, and, and you have to have, you know, those close relationships because it is so much trust and so much, um, you know, factors on all three pieces or two pieces, whether it's punt or field goal, um, for everything to operate smoothly. And I, yeah, that I love that. And I, I saw us put in their, their uh, holder there on, on the, on the kicks was also part of that group. And now he was the, he was their quarterback. Uh, and so they, they were just a, such a tight knit group. So very cool there. We're going to put the deep snapping portion, you know, to bed here. Let's talk about your coaching. You know, you were a volunteer on the staff at w, WMU for the 2014 season. And then the past two seasons, you coached at Northwest High School in Jackson, Michigan. That's about 45 minutes west of Ann Arbor or so. And you coached O-line and special teams. So just, you know, just in general, we won't dive too much into all the coaching, but just what, what are some takeaways or anything you wanted to share with the listeners about your experience coaching? Yeah. I, so again, having a coaching background with, with my dad, I, that was kind of something that I always thought I would, I would get into. Um, the year at Western was good, but it was also very challenging. Um, again, I'm a volunteer, mm-hmm. so not making any money, right. um, putting in long hours. There's also like limitations on what you can and can't do because you're a volunteer. So, um, it was tough, but, but the, the vision or the dream was to pursue into a graduate assistant, like stipend coach, or, you know, eventually work into full-time, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, coach Fleck, who's now at Minnesota, um, was a coach my senior year at Western. And then that year I volunteered, um, between him and Rob Wanger, who was our special teams coordinator, they challenged me, um, in the most productive, encouraging ways possible. Um, and there were times where it was tough because I made mistakes or, you know, where there, there kind of has to be that tough love and, and that balance of that. But then there was also, you know, they were the first to encourage me or the first to motivate me both as a player and, and as a coach, um, you know, moving forward. And um, after that season, you know, uh, things didn't really work out as far as me finding a graduate assistant position, whether it was at Western or at another school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, well, do I want to volunteer for another year again? Like sure. some people do it and, and you hear the stories and they're great. Like, you know, props to those those coaches that, that can do that. But for myself, I was like, I, I don't, I don't know if I can. Like, it's a uh, tough life, especially yeah. when the spring, when you're recruiting, I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I decided to step away after that 2014 season and, and kind of dabble in some private lessons and training and, you know, kind of went my professional career route. But, um, you know, I think the biggest lessons from at that level, right. Is, um, four coaches looking to get into the college game, you know, it's, it's a grind, it's a battle, it's, you know, 14 hour days. And, um, but again, the, the relationships are, and the lessons you learn, whether it's from other coaches or, or through the players, you know, are, are very rewarding. Um, and then the last two years, um, you know, I, I again, I, I'd kind of taken some time away from football and, um, you know, wanted to get back into it, whether it was a part-time thing and, um, so my first year at Northwest, I was kind of helping out like two days a week, mm-hmm. working with the specialists, helping out with the O-line, being an extra set of eyes on on game day or game nights, you know. Um, and then the following year, I was able to step kind of more into a full-time 
assistant coach role, helping with the, like coaching the O-line, both JV and varsity, um, you know, helping kids. I, I kind of share my lessons from the long snapping side of things. You know, there were kids that were like, oh, I, I want to learn how to do this because, you know, it's, it's a way to get on the field. And, yeah. um, and again, that was something rewarding t- for me because that's, that's how, I, when I was in high school, I, I played a little bit here and there, you know, as I got older, like as I was a senior, um, you know, I would played offensive line, but my initial point to get me on the field was through long snapping sure. and, um, you know, and kind of like perfecting that craft and, and kind of encouraging kids and sharing with them, you know, Hey, this is something that's, it's very monotonous. It's very, it's not, it's not an attractive position, but you know, it gives you opportunities. And then, you know, then you go from there, then as you continue to work hard and develop and it creates more opportunities, but, um, you know, really had a great time these past two years at at Northwest and and working with those kids and, and those coach, that coaching staff, again, it was, we didn't have a ton of success wins and losses wise, but, um, you know, again, it's, it's about the relationships and the connections that you make and, um, what you've shared a lot of, you know, just the, the relationships as you move forward into life and as you become a, professional or become a, a husband or a father like you know there's these valuable lessons that you learn through football and through coaching that that prepare you for these these moments and opportunities and so I'm really curious because I haven't, I haven't asked you this yet but what brought you to Texas because very recently you're in Michigan coaching and now I know you, you live here in the Houston area what, what brought you to Texas it, it was um so again being born and raised in California <laughs> moving to Michigan for, you know, 11, 12 years. Um, I was, I was ready for a change of scenery. Yeah, um, yeah. My wife was born and raised in Michigan and, you know, oh, she was perfect. like, she was, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm tired of the snow too. And so, love it. Um, yeah. and we have some relationships in the area. Uh, we're, we're in Kingwood and, you know, so we have some relationships in the area that, that brought us that to this kind of specific area. Um, yeah you know, and then my sister lives in New Braunfels. And so there's some family ties and, um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's always been a, a destination for us. So very cool. the opportunity was available, we, we made the move. And so, you know, it, I totally didn't even think of this, but you mentioned PJ Fleck was your coach. And I mean, I got to ask the row the boat phenomenon, mm-hmm. you know, I, I know that, that people that are detractors of university of Minnesota and detractors of PJ Fleck, they see him as kind of like a, you know, used car salesman, snake oil salesman kind of guy, you know, just putting on a show. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying I believe that, but I'm curious for you that you were in those meeting rooms, you were on that, in that locker room. What's your opinion of coach Fleck, uh, you know, and don't, don't worry, I'm not going to listen to this podcast, you know, but, <laughs> but I mean, was it, was it genuine? Did it, did the players really buy into it? Was it played out? I'm just, cause you hear so much in national, you know, in the national the you know media perspective about what pj fleck is i'm curious from you what was coach pj fleck like so the first year so the first year at western was his first head coaching job he mm-hmm. he came from the the tampa bay buccaneers and um and was a receivers coach and so i think like everybody at first was like who is this right. what you know what's this all about and um again like you know his resume maybe didn't look like some of the other candidates that were up for the job that, you know, at Western, when there was that turnover, um, he was young and, you know, I think a lot of people were just, it was just like a culture shock, which, which he was trying to do like, um, you know, and he came into the first meeting and 
he explained everything about row the boat and we're all just kind of like okay but Uh you know we're 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 just again we're just trying to process and, and take everything in so myself personally i was a senior and i was like this is my last season like i'm one, I'm a long snapper, so I have no room to say anything. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm like, I have no choice but to but to buy in because yeah. this is this is my last season. Like right, I right. I want it to be as memorable as it can be. You know, I'm in. And and again, he was it, it, you hear about the the car salesman side of things, but he was one hundred percent real, one hundred percent genuine. Yeah we never saw dips or ebbs and flows of it. Like he was consistent. He was true, you know, to how he was delivering and how he was saying everything. Um, and he was, and he was living it out too. Um, you know, so I, again, I think we had some change in our play. We had players leave. We had, you know, there was whatever it's not for everybody or whatnot, but then, so we had a tough year that 2013 year, we went one and 11 um you know but then that 2014 season when I volunteered to stay on I was like you know what I'm I'm in I want to be around you know like I have relationships here I was like this is like I want I want to try and stick through this and And, we had it yeah go go ahead I'm sorry yeah so we had one of the biggest turnarounds you know we ended up going eight and four yep um we we were in the Idaho potato bowl against uh Air Force that year we ended up losing a, a tight one to Air Force but you know, that was, I mean, you got to see, and, and it takes time, you know, like it takes time, whether it's uh, the staff, the players, the, the school administration, everything like that. But um, like I mentioned earlier, you know, he, he challenged me in a way that I hadn't had before because maybe I was just a long snapper or, so you know. That's really cool. So he, like, you're, you're saying like he, he went out of his way to like come to you and and, yes. and work with you and, and and that is that's incredible yeah and and again like you know he he cares he cares yeah. about his players he cares and and again like not that i needed anything or um was expecting anything because again i'm a senior long snapper i'm on my way out you know he's trying to turn around this program um but again because of you know that experience i had with him my senior year i was like you know if, if it works out, I'd, I'd love to stick around, volunteer and, and, and still be a part of this, um, you know, and it was really cool to see things change into that yeah. year when, when things started to turn around. Hey, now we're winning and and there's that excitement. There's this buzz and, you know, everybody's bought in. And, um, you know, so so again, uh, I bring in it full circle, you know, I, um, you know, I appreciate all that he has done for me and, and you know, the lessons that I've learned. Um, you know, I apply to my professional life and, you know, my professional career these days. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, you're seeing the success at Minnesota, you yeah. know, I know they, they were down a little bit, but I mean, there's, there's high expectations. Well, that was the 2020 year, man. I think everybody can throw that year out. Michigan had yeah. an awful 2020 <laughs> year and the next year they're in the playoffs, you know? So yeah. I, 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 you know, and I'm hearing a lot of scuttlebutt saying a lot, of team, a lot of people that are in the know are picking Minnesota to contend for that Big Ten West ch- uh, yeah, title. So I, I love it, and I, you know, I just love, and I, I'm I'm with, I, I'm a believer. I'm a row the boat guy of Coach Flake. I, I think he's very good. I think there are some other coaches that maybe are a little disingenuous sometimes, but I <laughs> I believe what he's selling. And um, 
to see it, and I was just, just for a team to go one and eleven, that's got to be hard, right? When a guy is preaching yeah. all this change energy, and then you immediately go one and eleven, but then the next year he goes eight and five. Yeah, and I mean, it's like that doesn't happen very often. Usually, it's like okay, we're one eleven. Well, maybe this year now we're four and seven, you know, yeah. and then we're yeah. then we're seven yeah. and six. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's usually more like that to go from one win to eight wins is incredible, and that just shows even though they they y'all lost in the first year, he kept the team believing. Maybe he removed some bad elements that he needed to, and he kept the guys that were ready to row the boat, you know, honestly yeah. speaking. Uh, and it, it worked out and, and so glad that it did. So very cool there. Love, love the story with PJ Fleck. Uh, PJ Fleck. We, th- you know, at this point, I like to ask as we kind of wrap up your coaching career. I always ask like for parents that are listening, I ask my, my guests to give advice to parents. And so you're, you're in a unique situation where like, we've talked a lot about the, the pathway to success as a deep snapper. And so I want to give you, I want you to give your elevator pitch as to why you would encourage a parent to allow their, maybe not allow, encourage, not force, of course, but encourage their child to just see, you know, if, if they deep snapping something they're interested in, I'm just, I would love to hear your elevator pitch to a parent as to the value of letting your child who's a football player try deep snapping. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, for me, I think the big part is, is it forces you to be a self-motivator, a self-starter, you know, you have to kind of, it's like I mentioned earlier, it's a very monotonous yeah. task. It's a very, uh, it's not the most exciting thing, but the, the lessons that you learn of, hey, I'm going to keep, you know, doing the same thing over and over and over again to get better, um, you know, it, it creates these healthy habits and successful habits for um, student athletes as they become men, as they become professionals, as they become, uh, you know, husbands and, and fathers. So um, I, I think it creates a lot of opportunities. I think it creates a lot of um, life skills and lessons that you can easily apply. You know, there's times where I was snapping in this batting cage at 10 PM at night by myself in our indoor facility, you know, and, um, the challenges of, um, you know, I think the big thing, the big, le- the biggest lesson, right. Is, is there's no second down on a punt. There's no second down on a field goal. Um, you know, so it forces you to, to have this attention to detail where I have to get this done right now, because if I don't, then I have to go stand on the sidelines for maybe 20, 30 minutes before I get another opportunity. And, you know, and I don't say that to, to scare people away, you know, but I say that in the sense of, Hey, you know, this challenges you to have that focus and, and it creates a lot, a lot of opportunities and it, and it, it really helps in the future. Everybody that I talk to, they look at me and they're like, you're not a division one football player. And, <laughs> and I say, you're right. If I didn't know how to do this, you know, if it. I didn't know how to long snap that. and, um, I mean, it, it's, it was a connection point for us uh, on this podcast. Yeah. And, um, it's a, it's a conversation starter, you know, it's, everyone's always interested about it. And, um, you know, so I think there's, there's the football lessons, there's the life lessons, there's the opportunities to, you know, to get scholarships. And, um, but I think the biggest thing is, is it, it helps kids get on the field. Um, you know, that was the biggest thing for me. Um, you know, one kid I worked with in Michigan, he was smaller than me and he ended up snapping at Northern Michigan. So a division two school. And, um, got scholarship, you know, ended up earning some scholarship money and, you know, so it's like, there's, there's opportunities. You just, you just need one coach to like you. And if, if you have visions of playing 
you know, at the higher level, but, but even just at the high school level, um, you know, it gives kids a, a chance to play, um, get on the field and, you know, keep that love of, of football and, and that drive to just continue to push themselves, um, you know, is, keeps them going. Is Northern Michigan that's up there in Muskegon? It might be even, it's further than that. Even it's further? Okay. Marquette. It's like oh, in the Marquette. Yeah, I think you're right. Marquette. Think, okay. Very cool. Yeah. It's I way think, up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very so, cool. Very cool. Um, I, I love that, man. You know, and I, I totally agree with all that. But, you know, one thing that stands out to me, I, I don't remember where you told me this, if it was in the notes or when we were just kind of, you know, messaging on Twitter, but you, I think you called yourself the fourth down quarterback. Yes. I got a little chuckle when I, when I, when I read that, you know, so just tell us a little bit about that, that fourth down quarterback mentality. Yeah. And so again, right. It's, it's something to joke around. Like, you know, uh, my completion percentage was, probably in the upper 90 percentile you know? um, and uh take that yeah. joe montana <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah you know i mean right the we we, we would kind of joke around you know you hear like fourth down army or fourth down yeah. quarterback or you know there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of recognition and stuff that that people try and bring attention to the specialists which i think is all in good fun you know you, you see stuff on twitter or um, Instagram about, you know, what, what specialists are doing, you know, whether it's trick shot, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I think, um, one thing that me and my punter, Jay Schroeder, my last couple of years at Western, we talked about, you know, that, Hey, I'm, I'm the fourth down quarterback. I, I come in every fourth down and, and get to complete a pass. So <laughs> love it. I, I love that. And any coaches listening, please install that with your punt team. I love the fourth down quarterback. I'm going to have to share that with my brother, man. I sure, I'm sure he'll love it. Let me run through some of the, you know, some of the big names you've played against. You got to play against Khalil Mack at Buffalo. So that was kind of the equivalent of my brother having Ray Ottman standing over him. And so that's yeah. kind of similar there. You know, Khalil Mack, uh, your father, Dave Nakamo is a college baseball coach, as you mentioned at Stanford and UW university of Washington in Seattle, as well as San Jose state and the university of Hawaii, uh, Honolulu. I, I take it there. Or Manoa, I guess, yeah, is kind yep. of technically the, <laughs> the correct uh, uh, identification there. Your cousin, CJ uh, Santiago, was a punter at BYU. And your younger brother, Brody Nakama, was the long snapper at the University of Hawaii from 2013 to 2016. So really, uh, yeah, long lineage of sports there that you have in your family. So anything from those stories you want to add to or share? Um, again, I, I think the, the big thing with athletics in general, whether it's coaching, playing, um, you know, it, it's going to provide access and opportunities in the future, whatever that may be. You know, um, while my dad was at Stanford, we got to go to the College World Series a few mm. years, you know, and, and those are very special memories. And, and Omaha is a special place for our family because, um, you know, we got to experience and, and share that together. And without my dad's network, I, he doesn't have the relationships at Western Michigan, you know, that helped me get there. Right. Um, my cousin CJ, you know, he punted at BYU. He, he originally walked on at Hawaii. Then he transferred to a junior college and, and finished up at BYU. But I think that was for me, you know, when he earned a scholarship out of a JUCO to go punt at BYU, you know, that kind of turned on the light bulb in my head of like, hey, this, not that I was going to punt, but I could snap. Absolutely. And maybe that's an opportunity, you know, so that, Absolutely. that kind of, um, opened up that opportunity. And, and then I think just for, to share, so my brother's younger than me, you know, so then having that success that I had at Western, I was able to help him and, and, you know, he had an opportunity at the university of Hawaii to play, had, had a lot of success, had a lot of challenges early on. And, you know, we were one in 11 the same yeah. year, um, yeah, yeah. his freshman year at Hawaii, but, you know, he, he ended up getting a bowl win and, 
Um, he was a GA at Hawaii uh, under Nick Rolovich and his staff. And um, my brother went viral with his scholarship. Uh, Very <laughs> cool. Um, he went off the high dive at the pool at University of Hawaii. And there was the scholarship was like taped to the high dive. So, yeah. um, you know, that was his viral moment. Um, again, at a few years later than mine, you know, things started to go viral a little bit quicker. But uh, yeah, you'll, um, you'll know this because I've been to Honolulu once, my wife and I, because we're trying to visit all 50 states. Okay. And yeah. so I, I've done 49 of them now. So Hawaii was one of them. All that's left now is, is uh, Alaska. That's our last okay. one. So we're trying to cruise up there someday or something. You know, I can't wait to see Anchorage. But um, I've actually had one of my guests, uh, Jennifer Salazar, team player alum, went to the University of Alaska at Anchorage. So I got to talk with her and that was okay. pretty cool. Yeah. But as far as Hawaii, Waikiki, Bay, uh, Waikiki Beach, of course, was, was fun. And we had a good time there. But I actually went, I went to the campus, uh, you know, uh, University of Hawaii there in Manoa. And I went to a basketball game. They had, they had a, a preseason basketball tournament there. And it was really cool walking around there, walk past the baseball field. And they have like, they have a football stadium right there on campus in between the baseball field and the, um, and the basketball arena. And I believe yeah. there are plans to, you know, bring down, you know, long live Aloha stadium, lots of yeah. great memories, you know, for them and the pro bowl and all that. But I think, you know, we went, we went to a bowl game there as well. And it's, it's an aging facility. Yes, I'll, I'll say yeah. that it's, it, it's, it's definitely a remnant of its time. Um, so they're going to, they're going to take it down, but I think Hawaii is actually going to play their home games at that on-campus little football stadium. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So they, so they added bleachers, I think at last season, but okay. there was still some COVID restrictions in Hawaii that yeah. were limiting that. So they didn't get to fully take advantage, but I did see they sold out for Vandy this coming weekend. They're playing Vanderbilt there. Wow. That's quite um, an SEC campus. team coming out there. Yeah. I bet all those fans. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to enjoy that. It's, it's an intimate setting. Cause it really is. Yeah. The, the stadium is like nestled into surrounding facilities, like a baseball mm -hmm. field and a arena. And so, yeah. And there's, there's, there's been some discussions about expanding it even more. Um, Where are they talking about building the new permanent stadium uh, to replace Aloha? Uh, like, is it going to be in in like downtown or something, or where, where are they thinking? I I don't know as much. I feel like there's a lot of back and forth on sure. that as far as the big decision. I'm sure uh, land there. I'm sure is extremely expensive. Yeah. So I think they've talked about where Aloha Stadium is, knocking it down, rebuilding there, sure. and kind of making it more of a. Um, I don't know what you call it, but just have more attractions in that area as well to make yeah, it. A I got you. Destination Food, drink, spot. entertainment. Yeah. And I, the big trend nowadays, Kirk, I'm, I'm seeing in new stadiums, they're making them smaller. So the mm -hmm. days of a big monolith, gigantic stadium, like Aloha Stadium or the big house in Michigan, like they, they don't build stadiums like that anymore. Right. You know, uh, now, now it's more, uh, instead of just a big bowl shape, it's more like having different areas of course having luxury boxes right but smaller so you can fill it up because so many people can watch from home now and especially yeah. post-covid maybe yeah. a lot maybe are, are not comfortable to go out in person which is fine you know so i just i, I kind of think it's a good trend i think it's a good yeah. trend make the stadium yeah. smaller make it more intimate so even if it isn't a big opponent you can still kind of fill it up and uh i'm all for that but man this has been fun i could talk i could talk to you all day let's get to your favorite teams this is always yeah. one of my yeah. favorite segments we're kind of just having fun now at the end of the show you listed university of hawaii so in yep. your honor, as, as my listeners know, I collect jerseys. So I've always got every guest. I got something. I'm wearing a Jesse Sapolu Hawaii jersey, the old rainbow. Like, seriously, they're the rainbow warriors. Now they've kind of gone to or now they're the warriors. They're just the warriors. Correct. They, they took out the rainbow, I believe. I, it's I think you'll see. I mean, I think it's technically they're the warriors. Yeah. Because now, see. you know, now, like whenever Colt Brennan and Timmy Chang, they, they kind of right. switched to more of the, the, you know, forest green and black 
colors. Yeah, I'm wearing correct. the one from when they were the Rainbow Warriors, with, you yes. know, with the rainbow colors. Uh, Jess Sapola, of course, was a great, uh, I believe he's a center for the 49ers, native Hawaiian, uh, you know, gr- great players. I'm wearing his jersey in your honor. So he listed University of Hawaii, he listed Stanford, the Cardinal. Of course, yep. uh, he listed, of course, Western Michigan University. Absolutely. You list the Golden State Warriors as a good Bay Area, a son of the Bay yeah. Area would do. And so you've been you've been enjoying a lot of success recently. And finally, listed the Oakland A's. Does it break your heart to see Oakland Coliseum have like 300 people out there to watch yeah. a Tuesday afternoon game? <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It's tough, definitely. I mean, you know, growing up in, in like the Moneyball era sure. uh, of the A's, it was, there was a lot of fun and a lot of excitement, you know, definitely around. So it, it's it's been tough. And, you know, I've been gone now from California for – you know, 12, 13 years. So haven't been to a game at the Coliseum, but it's, it's also a need of repair, right? I'm sure that's the owner's big problem. (laughs) And that's usually what happens whenever a team threatens moving, which I've experienced as a, as a Houston, Houstonian, what we lost the Oilers because the Astrodome no longer suited Bud Adams. And we got into big, we can go on and on about that, but I made a bold, not a bold prediction. I made a prediction that I saw that the Raiders went to Vegas and I said, the same thing's going to happen. I said, the A's are going to Vegas. And I'm hearing though, there are talks now to build a new, stadium out there in Oakland I mean you're probably more plugged in than me do you feel like they're going to leave or what what are your thoughts yeah I again I feel like there's when when they talk about building elsewhere there's pushback when they talk about moving there's pushback I mean yeah. with a lot of issues today there nobody's ever happy um so I hope they stay in Oakland there you know there's a tradition and, and rich culture in Oakland so I'd love to see them stay yeah um, but again you know money money talks and money will move, uh, you know, wherever teams are called to go to. So no doubt. And I mean, when, when a team, when the attendance gets that low and I'm not, I'm not taking, it's not a knock on A's fans. Cause they're actually great fans. Like when the team, yeah. I remember they, they were challenging the Astros a lot in the AL West, uh, having a lot of success against them when we're, you know, really at the top, but cause they'd have the drums going. I mean, they were yeah, passionate yeah. fans. Like they're like your true, true bleacher creature kind of fans. But <laughs> yeah. Whenever you whenever you see some of these attendances they put up this year, which I, I get it because like the team feels like they are not trying selling off a lot of their assets. But uh, anyway, I don't want to get too far uh, d- down the road there. But we're about to get into the uh, start bench. Oh, one thing I was going to say, and this is not I don't want to get us off track, but I'm just going to say this. I've always kind of thought, man, cost of living is so high in San Francisco. I've always kind of thought maybe some people will move across the bay. And so Oakland will see a resurgence of, of, of just influx of new people and money and, and uh, gentrification and revitalization. So maybe that'll be what can kind of save the A's. But as currently constructed, uh, I'm worried about you guys. You know, I yeah. am. And I know the Warriors, of course, moved across the Bay. I mean, they're, now oh. their arena is in San Francisco. So does that let me ask you that? I do want to ask you that one. Does that hurt or, or is it close enough to where it doesn't really matter? I mean, for, for someone like you, that's a fan of Oakland teams, like does that right. hurt to go across the Bay or is it not a big deal? Yeah, I think, I mean, again, I've, I've been gone since that move, That's you know, true, and, true. and a lot of, a and a lot of my friends that are still in the area, I mean, they're still fan. The Warriors are still winning. So I think that's also a part of it that there's, sure. they, you know, it's, it doesn't change the drive that much, um, the commute that much, but, um, again, I think because they've still been so successful, maybe there's maybe been a little bit of less pushback, um, you know, I, I, I went, I went to a playoff game at Oracle during the, we believe team yeah. times. And I wouldn't say it's a dump or, you know, <laughs> struggling or anything like that, you know, but maybe again, it's just a newer, it would be cheaper to build brand new than to knock it down and rebuild. And, sure. you know, so I don't know. I, I mean, uh, that might be part of it as well, but maybe less pushback because the Warriors have, have had so much success. <laughs> 
All right, I'm going to put your fandom to the test, Kirk. This is where I put you on the hot seat. We're going to play our game of start, bench, cut. So I'll give you a little bit of time to prepare yourself while I thank our good friends at the MVP Marketing Group, a turnkey marketing solution for schools. If you go to their website, there is a testimonial from Hall of Fame, uh, Denton Ryan, former head football coach. Now he's the AD, Joey Florence. He is a customer. And basically what they do is they're going to help you uh, secure corporate sponsorships. Mike Vogelar, the CEO, good friend of mine, former co-worker at Dactronics, and that, that's his specialty. That's his wheelhouse. You know, he, he knows how to put together what, what those sponsors want, um, you know, packages that, that they want to invest in, you know, to promote their brand. So if that's what you, if you want to try to raise money, you know, for your athletic department through corporate sponsorship, Mike Vogar is your guy, give him a call. His, his, his contact info is in the show notes. And if you, if you decide to do it, he's going to give you a team player podcast discount. So just keep that in mind. All right, here we go, Kirk. Let's start with a fun Aloha state signal caller edition. Had some good ones come through there. Timmy Chang, your new coach, your new leader, Colt Brennan, rest in peace, you know, Colt Brennan. And this guy didn't play at UH, but he's a native son to a tag by Loa. You know, came over stateside, uh, you know, and started Alabama. Now he's a Dolphin. Give me a start bench cut for those three quarterbacks. Who would you start? Who would you bench? And who would you have to cut? I, I went back and forth on this a lot. Uh, you know, it, I guess between the start and the bench, um, I would think, you know, Timmy Chang was what introduced my love and, and appreciation for Hawaii football. And then, uh, you know, while Colt Brennan was there, the magical run that yeah. they had. Um, so with uh, Timmy Chang starting his head coaching career, I, yeah. I think I'm going to start Timmy Chang. Okay, yeah. Um, I, I'm going to bench Colt and then I'm going to cut Tua. Really? Yeah. It, so that's just totally fandom speaking because to me too is a very high yes 100 percent, 100 fandom yeah and it's and your yeah. show you you start who you want <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna put the first round draft pick on the bench I'm, right <laughs> <laughs> i love fandom I, I i and i don't blame you i don't blame you man i mean when i think hawaii football i think timmy chang i think colt brennan i think ashley Lee. you mm-hmm. know those, those are some names that pop into my head so yeah some definitely some those, those are some guys for some great teams all right, let's go to Western Michigan edition. You brought this guy up, Greg Jennings. He was the 52nd pick in 2006. Corey Davis, the fifth pick in 2017. So you didn't cross paths with Corey Davis at all, right? I did, actually. You did, yes. okay. So he was a freshman my senior year, and then the year I volunteered uh, was his sophomore year. So a couple years. What was Corey Davis like? I always love to ask, like, whenever you meet famous people, I mean, what, what was he like? So he's, I mean, he, he's somebody who's, you know, he, he kind of keeps to himself, you know, he's not, not very flamboyant, flashy, anything like that. But I mean, he's a grinder, you know, he seeing him work and um, Western might've been his only scholarship offer out of high school, you know, and, and, and partnering him with coach Fleck and then, and then the rest of the offensive staff that we had at Western. I mean, they, um, Matt Simon was a wide receivers coach um, who's at Minnesota as well. And, and Kirk Shiraka, who's, who's the OC, they, they just really created a, a lot of opportunities for him, but then also, you know, his work ethic and his character, um, just top notch and, and really was a, was a professional before anybody even knew it, um, I as far it. as how he handled himself at Western. Yeah. It happens every time, every time I, I meet someone that, that, you know, knew a pro player, that's always the same. They always say he was a great person. He was a hard worker hundred percent of the time so far mm-hmm. and nobody, and it's not like they're just giving me lip service. Like, you know, even <laughs> like when we turn off the camera, they tell me the same thing, you yeah. know? So uh, that's great. And that just shows, you know, for, for any players listening, character matters, hard work matters. I mean, the guys that are going to slack off and cut corners typically don't make it to that level. Right. So, it, you know, uh, definitely cool to see that. And then finally, this is close to home. 
Jason Babin, drafted by the Houston Texans. He was the 27th pick in 04, so a little bit before your time. But I'm, I'm, you may have obviously probably seen some some mm-hmm. pictures and memorabilia of him up up in your athletic facility. So I know it's a little wonky because there's you know there's two receivers and a defensive player. But we're just having fun here. Yeah. So you're just kind of ranking them in order. What your favorite? So let's go start bench cut. Greg Jennings, Corey Davis, and Jason Babin. Yeah. So so I think I'm 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 starting with Corey just with my first hand experience of yeah, sure. him and and working with him. Um, and then you hate to bench Greg Jennings and, and the Super Bowl ring and, yeah. and all that he did at Western Michigan too. I mean, and especially being a Kalamazoo native, um, you know, and, and all the success that he has. And then, uh, yeah, uh, don't really know Jason Babin and sure. again, kind of before my time, but I mean, no, he did a lot of great things. And I think he was, he was drafted to the Texans. I Correct. think number 27 overall. Texans. Yeah. Houston Texans. Um, yep. But yeah, I think again, just for the position battle, uh, we'll we'll cut Jason Babin. Fair enough. Now let's go. Let's go. Over, let's go to basketball. We talked a little bit about this. Let's do a Dubs Mount Rushmore. So I'm gonna give this one open ended. So Mount Rushmore is gonna be your top four all time. And so I gotta ask, are you a Run TMC guy like me? You're maybe too young. I mean, showing my age here, but I'm, I'm a big Run TMC guy. Chris Mullen, Mitch Richmond, and Timmy Hardaway. Do you, does that does that mean anything to you, or is that too far back? it's yeah it's a little before my time but again, yep. you, you hear right you hear about it you hear you know the the success and and you know how great of players that they were um and but uh, you did mention you are a we believe guy so you you were getting in you were getting down to baron davis and uh what was it who else did you have uh steven jackson yep. right so you're getting down to some of those guys you know and of course now you have your current iteration of the dubs which is just amazing which i'm sure you love but let's hear your top four uh kirk what's what's your uh all-time mount rushmore for the golden state warriors yeah, it's it's hard to not throw Steph Clay and, and Draymond Green on there right away. Sure. Being homegrown as far as draft picks and, and developed through the program, Absolutely. you know, through the organization and then and four rings. Um so and and I and I talked to my friends about this too that are are still in the Bay Area. I was like, yeah. you know, what what are people saying to, to kind of help me out a little bit? And, I love it. You know, again, it's you know Mullins and even you know, some people talk about Wilt. Chamberlain and that's a good one yeah like um but it you know again like I'm I'm a homer I'm a a fandom you know I I never got to really see those guys play with my own eyes and so so I think for my fourth one I'll 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 keep the we believe and I'll put uh Jay Rich on there Jay Rich Um, Jason Richardson and uh the Michigan guy a little Michigan again Michigan State right yeah yep and then between him and Draymond that'll keep my Michigan State uh connections strong as well remind me uh, on the we believe I mean, oh yeah. So Baron Davis, Jason Richardson, Stephen Jackson, Matt Barnes. Like, was there another that I'm missing? Was there another big cog of that team? So Monte Ellis was Monte Ellis, six man type guy. Um, and then, gosh, I don't remember off the top of my head, but yeah, I think again, that's kind of the the core was when when that I don't know if it was a trade or a transaction where that brought Stephen Jackson in, um, and then as well as you know, Baron Davis and uh, Jay Rich kind of helped leading that that crew. Um, I, I'm looking at the roster right now. Al Harrington, you know, okay, yeah, another, yep. another piece. Uh, but I, I think, yeah, I think we got the main guys there for sure. Um, and that team was famous. They were the first ever eight seed to beat a one seed. They beat the Dallas Mavericks. 
um, you know, in a, in a big upset there. And so team player podcast alum, Deandre Holmes, actually the episode right before yours is going to air. Uh, you know, he, he's a big fan as well. He's a big fan of the, we believe team. Okay. He, he loved the grittiness. Yeah. And I think that grittiness kind of like represented the Bay area in Oakland, you know, um, I know, I know there, there was that, uh, well, I, one of those, what do you call that? Last chance you for basketball that was set in Oakland, right? Oh, so, okay. I haven't, I haven't, or seen maybe that, it was football. Maybe it was football. Lane was football. college. Yeah. Laney, was the football one. I think they are East. I think they're in the East Bay, like yeah. kind of in that Oakland area. Yeah. Yep. All right. And let's finish. You mentioned the Oakland A's. Let's do a Bash Brothers edition. You know, it's kind of like to think back to those times. And again, maybe yeah. it's before your time. So I'm going to allow you to do subs if you want to. But I was curious, a start bench cut with Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco. Again, maybe maybe too far back. You, you can change if you want to. Yep. And of course, anytime you're talking about the Oakland A's, this again, might be too far back, but I'm sure you know this name. You got to talk about Ricky Henderson the all-time MLB steals leader. I mean, to me, whenever I think Oakland A's, he's what I think of. Uh, feel free to make any subs. But give me give me a start bench cut here for, for the Oakland Athletics. Yeah, so I think to give Ricky Henderson the, the respect he deserves, I'm going to sub him and put him in his own category. Okay, um, yeah. But I'll, I'll throw Jason Giambi in there to there you go. Okay. Yep. add another power hitter element to that. Um, I like that. Again, yeah. So I would say Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco were were early on as I was kind of growing up and and following baseball. But um, so I think I would start Mark McGuire. Um, I'll put my sub Jason Giambi on the bench. Again, that was more of my money, not Moneyball. I guess kind of started Moneyball yeah, that Moneyball yeah. era. But you know, had some success in those early two thousands with the A's, and then and then I would. Uh, cut Jose Canseco just because I think that was a little bit more, I would guess a little bit more disconnected with, with that time. Sure. So. Oh man, Kirk, this has been fun. I mean, I, this was homegrown. This yes. was a fan of the show that I didn't know that liked the Masaki Matsumoto episode and retweeted. And I reached out. I, I, I'm a real one. I will find you if you, <laughs> if you give me some love on the show. So that, that's how I said, I'm so glad that we got to connect. If, if you enjoyed this episode much as I did, please give us that five-star review. That makes such a big difference. That drives up the charts so more people can hear these great stories like Kirk Nakama's story. Hit the follow button to subscribe and hear new, a new episodes as soon as, as soon as they come out each week. And follow me on Twitter at Coach underscore Kobo. That's Coach underscore K-O-V-O. You can hit us up at teamplayerpodcast at gmail.com. Again, like I said, we lift up our own inside the Team Player Nation. Give me a recommendation. Email me if you want to come on the show. Anything at all, reach out, and I'll be sure to get right back to you. As always, the cover art and music for the Team Player Podcast are provided by two of my former players. Cover art is by Kaiser St. Cyr, and our intro and exit music is One More Good Enough from Avrion's self-titled debut album. You can find his music on all platforms by searching for Avrion. That's A-V-R-I-O-N. Kirk Nakama, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. All right, thank you so much to all the team players out there for your support, and we'll catch you all down the road. It always feel like I need one more boy and one more line. Record the track just one more time. My family think I bumped my head, lost my mind. Insuring them, I'm just fine. I'm good enough, but I need one more boy and one more line. Record the track just one more time. My family think I bumped my head, lost my mind. Insuring them, I'm just fine. I'm good enough, but I need one more boy and one more line. Record the track just one more time. My family think I bumped my head. Lost my mind, insuring them, I'm just fine, I'm good enough But you be told I need some therapy, initially ain't do it voluntarily But now I got a legacy, 